Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from the end of John 11 and the beginning of John 12. Listen carefully to the gospel of our God. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death Also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the work that you do in us through it. Cause us today to hear the gospel, to believe it, and to become more devout and faithful followers of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're about halfway, a little over halfway through John's Gospel. And I continue to be impressed uh, with regard to how Subtle and profound John is, but also how simple and direct John's gospel is. Today we reach a little beyond halfway, but we reach the main transition in John's gospel where we get to the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Let's consider where we were a couple weeks ago. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, 
the Jewish leaders became intent on putting Jesus to death. That's what verse 53 of John 11 says. Jesus had just resurrected a decaying dead man. And the response of the unbelieving Jews was to kill him. Their response was not to weigh the evidence and to consider whether they should repent, change course, and believe in Jesus and follow Him. John 11 gives us a window into the unbelieving heart. A heart at war with God can't be turned by the data, by the evidence. An unbelieving heart isn't interested in honest evaluation of reality. It's not interested in submitting to the truth. In John 11, the truth and the clear evidence of the truth in the resurrection of Lazarus, they are just inconveniences. They're obstacles to be removed. The Jews, you see, don't value Christ. They don't comprehend His worth. They don't know who He is because they never knew God to begin with. And so we see in this passage people who do not understand or comprehend Christ's worth and then people who do. But the Jewish authorities, they can't see the true identity of Jesus because they're not born of God. They're not born again of water and the Spirit from above. Jesus said back in John 3 that unless a man is born again, he can't enter enter or even see the kingdom of God. The religion of these Jews has become merely external. There's nothing going on inside of them. They're whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would call them. They're spiritually dead. Naturally, then, they determined to kill the God-man. However, it wasn't time for Jesus to die just yet. So in verse 54, Jesus goes into hiding. Then verse 55 says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to do what? To purify themselves. Many of these Jews who are going up to Jerusalem to purify themselves will be the ones crying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! In about a week. How easy it is to think we're doing things that are religious and holy and pure or purifying when in fact we're defiling ourselves with godless religion. In our small groups last week, this past week, we discussed the difference between man-centered religion and God-centered theology. Many of the people purifying themselves in Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover are engaged in man-centered religion. They, they don't know God. God isn't at the center of their lives or their theology or their worship. They've replaced God with themselves and their idols. These purification rituals, at least some of them, maybe most of them that they're performing, uh, are prescribed in the Bible. But the God of the Bible is nowhere to be found in their hearts. 
God spoke of this type of religious people back in Isaiah 29, verse 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on human traditions taught to them by man. So sure, these people come to Jerusalem to purify themselves before Passover, but their hearts, which is what I want, God says, their hearts couldn't be further from me. They don't know me. And that was not just a first century problem among the Jewish community. It's also a 21st century problem in the church. Many baptized church members come to church on Sunday to purify themselves on the outside. But on the inside, there's no life. There's no new birth. There's no heart for God. You see, the enemy is not all that concerned about us coming to church every Sunday to sing and raise our hands and kneel and confess our sins and confess the faith and pray and partake of the Lord's Supper. He's not, he's not worried about us engaging in these biblical forms of worship as long as it only ever goes skin deep. And that's all. As long as the Word and the sacraments and the songs and the prayers and the confessions never penetrate your heart to your heart, Satan can use all of this to help you create an external religion that blinds you to what's actually going on in your heart. That's, that's part of his plan, actually. And that's exactly what Satan had done And many of the Jews in the first century, they thought they were practicing biblical religion. Because a lot of what they were doing came out of the Scriptures. But their righteousness and their purity were only on the outside. The external forms had not penetrated to the inner being. They were circumcised in their flesh but their hearts remained uncircumcised. So when God showed up in the flesh, not only do they fail to recognize Him, but they also want to murder Him. Before they killed Him, though, they made sure to purify themselves. If God were to show up today to us, would you know Him? How many of us would recognize Him? Is the God you treasure in your heart the same God who is revealed in the Scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ? Where is your understanding of God misaligned? In what ways have you created God in your own image? All of us do this to some extent. It's impossible to have a perfect understanding of God. We all need to be realigned by Scripture Regularly. The unbelieving Jews were so misaligned in their understanding of God that they actually wanted to kill him when he appeared. They had no knowledge of God. But even the faithful ones in this story, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, even their understanding of Jesus and the gospel had been tweaked 
in recent days, and it was going to be tweaked again in about six days when Jesus goes to the cross. But you see, the difference between believers and unbelievers is that they're on different trajectories. The unbelieving Jews were descending to new lows of spiritual blindness and man-made religiosity. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, on the other hand, as we'll see, were ascending to new heights of faith in Christ and knowledge of the one true God. So which track are you on? What's your trajectory? This way or this way? Is your involvement in Christianity transforming your life or not? Is your participation in biblical rituals and worship including your practice of the spiritual disciplines, are these good habits and routines penetrating to your heart? Or have they become an external religion that is blinding you in some ways to the true state of your heart? Are you growing in your appreciation of the worth of Christ? Do you love Him? Do you trust Him to save you? Do you want to serve Him as Martha did? Do you want to be with Him as Mary did? Do you want to bring other people to Him as Lazarus did? Well, the Jews are flocking to Jerusalem to purify themselves, but ironically, Jesus is not safe there. Verse 56, Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So the people in Jerusalem were wondering whether Jesus will have the courage to come to Jerusalem for this central feast in Israel's life. It's the talk of the town. What do you think? Will he, is he going to come to the feast? I don't know, that'd be pretty risky. What do you think? I don't know. I guess we'll see. Many of them, of course, looking for an opportunity opportunity to turn him in. The reason people are talking like this is that the authorities, as we just saw, had given strict orders to turn Jesus in. In chapter 12, we see that not everyone took these orders very seriously. Just six days before the Passover, our Lord was approaching Jerusalem. The city was thronged with priests and pilgrims. In six days, Jesus would be stretched out on a cross to give His life for those who hated Him. And so now we've reached that turning point, that transition, halfway through John's Gospel. And John 12 begins the most momentous week in world history. This week began with the arrival of Jesus in Bethany on His way up to Jerusalem where He'd be crucified. No other week is quite like this week. Creation week is an important week. The first week of Christ's ministry on earth is an important week. But neither of these Weeks compares with the last week of Christ's life. 
Nearly one half of John's Gospel is given to narrating the events in this momentous week. This is the week in which Christ went up to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. To give His life as a ransom for His chosen people. To become a sacrificial substitute for those who believe in Him. John 12, verses 1 and 2. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was, who had been dead, whom He had raised from the dead. There they made Him a supper, Jesus, a supper. And Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Him. Now, we know from Matthew and Mark that this meal took place in the, in the home of Simon the leper, or better, Simon the ex-leper. Jesus had healed him. We also learn from Matthew's Gospel that the disciples were also there, along with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was a brave thing for, the, for these people to be eating a meal with Jesus and for Simon the leper to harbor Jesus in his home. Jesus was a wanted man. Sanhedrin had given that order, you remember, to report where he was, where he is to the authorities. Verse 2 indicates that the dinner was given in honor of Jesus. The most recent cause of celebration, of course, was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The end of verse 2 notes that Lazarus, the ex-dead man, was sitting at the table with Jesus. And right in the middle of verse 2, John sticks in a little phrase. And Martha served. That's what Martha loved to do. It's what she's famous for. In some ways, infamous for. If you've been reading your Bible very long, or if you've listened to very many sermons, you know that early in the ministry of Jesus, there was another dinner event in which Martha served the Lord and the other people there with a bad attitude. Luke records it in chapter 10 of his gospel. In that story, Mary had you know, drifted off to spend time with Jesus to learn from him at his feet. And Martha said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But Jesus responded in Luke 10, 40-42, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed, and, Martha, and, and Mary has chosen that better part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha's problem wasn't that she was serving, of course not. Serving is how God wired Martha. It was her gift to Jesus and His people and to her own family. Without the Marthas of this world, there'd be less hospitality. And we'd all be skinnier. Our potlucks wouldn't go as well as they do without the Marthas that God has given to our church. Martha's problem in Luke 10 was not her service. Her problem at that earlier meal was that she wasn't serving Jesus with faith and joy. She wasn't at peace. She was too worried about how much there was to do and about who wasn't pulling their weight. 
But John's subtle comment in verse 2 implies that she had grown in her gift of service. Presumably, she had learned to serve without comparing herself to others. She had learned not to press others into her mold. Ideally, she had learned to offer her service as worship. She had learned to present her body to God as a living sacrifice by serving Jesus and His people joyfully in the background. It's interesting, John just gives a little phrase that she was serving and then moves on. We don't get the kind of commentary that we get in the first story. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. By God's grace, by God's transforming work in Martha's life, which is how it always works when God saves us, He transforms us. Martha's self-centered service in Luke 10 had become God-centered service in John 12. Because Martha's outlook had been transformed by Jesus. Offering your whole being to God occurs when the proper perspective is there. If your job is to manage a home and instruct children all day, you have the option of doing it one of two ways. Either you can look for for rewards and recognition and validation as you do it, or you can do it sacrificially as your reasonable service to God and as a response to God's mercies in your life. You can do it with a self-centered spirit or a God-centered spirit. God-centered service is always the characteristic of those who have had their hearts touched by God. That's the main difference in everything you will ever do. No matter how burdensome or boring or physically demanding or emotionally demanding your vocation is, no matter how much you like it or dislike it, your calling, you have the choice every day of offering your entire self, your body, and that verse means your whole being, to God as a sacrifice that is alive and holy and pleasing to God. You can decide every day to use your calling and your circumstances, no matter how good or bad, you can use them daily as an opportunity to serve God faithfully and joyfully. And when your spirit is right, your service is worship. When your spirit is right, your service is worship. We have every indication that Martha's gift of service had become worship in John 12 too. She had become God-centered and others-centered in her service. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial for the poor you have with you always. But me, you do not have always the significant statement in this section is what Jesus says about Mary in verse seven. She's kept it for the day of my burial. Now, Scholars debate what Jesus meant here. Is Jesus saying that Mary knew, had comprehended Jesus' approaching death and burial? Or is Jesus simply saying that Mary's act of devotion signaled more than she knew? Did Mary pour this oil on Jesus because she knew his death and burial were near? Or did she do it just to demonstrate the worthiness of her Lord more generally? And then Jesus used this opportunity to note how her action pointed forward to his death and burial. Well, it's hard to say. I kind of went back and forth this week. I thought I knew what I thought, and then as I looked into it, it's a legitimate debate. But what we do know with certainty is that her gift was a significant commitment that was worthy of gospel notation. Her, her gift was worthy to be associated with the atoning death of Christ, which is the central event of the gospel. And that's why I lean toward thinking that she knew what was happening, at least at some level, what was going to happen. Matthew and Mark record something else that Jesus said about Mary's act of devotion. He said, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Seems to me she might have known that Christ was about to die. And this, is, this was her way of putting her faith in that gospel event, in Christ and in His upcoming death. Now, we shouldn't imagine that she knew all of the particulars that we do now, having the full revelation of God. But, Jesus had told His disciples about His impending death on many occasions. Is it so hard then to imagine that Mary was the one follower of Christ who actually believed what Jesus had been saying, who believed the gospel at a deeper level, and who realized that he would die soon? Well, I'm not sure. In any event, though, Mary, when Mary anointed Jesus with costly oil, and wiped his feet with her hair, she was putting all of her trust in her Lord and Messiah. And ultimately, all faith in the Messiah is faith in his death and in his resurrection. The jar or box of oil was worth a year's salary. She could have saved it for retirement. She might have used it for a dowry. Judas certainly had other ideas for it, right? But Mary was so captivated by Jesus that she offered everything she had. 
her heart and her soul and her body and her strength, her tears, and her most costly earthly possession. She offered everything to Jesus. Hers was an expression of deep gratitude and true faith. Mary was self-forgetful. She was Christ-centered. And she was passionate about her relationship with, with Jesus. We see this especially as we combine the two occasions in which she sat at Jesus' feet. And the Lord didn't restrain Mary from what she was doing. There are times when we shouldn't shy away from such open, fervent love for Christ. Mary, Jesus said in another place, had done a beautiful thing. And John adds at the end of verse 3, and the house was filled with the fragrance or the aroma of that oil. See, Mary didn't just use a tiny pinch of the oil to anoint Jesus and then save the rest for something else. She broke the container and filled the room with that fragrance. Does the aroma of Christ fill the rooms that you're in. The the aroma of Christ doesn't occur when you give Him half of your heart, half of your time, half of your pocketbook, half of your talents, half of your ambitions, half of your life, half of your plans. It only occurs when you give Him everything. The text says that Mary used her hair. A woman's hair is her glory. Mary's giving glory to Christ. That's what this whole scene is about. The worth of Christ that some recognize and some don't. Her self-forgetting act of of spreading the oil on Jesus' feet with her hair was the means by which the aroma of the glory of the Lord was spread to the others in the house. As Mary humbly gave herself with no thought of her own glory, she became a blessing to others. Are you a blessing to others as you follow Jesus? If you're not, if if knowing you doesn't make others think of Jesus or see Jesus, smell the aroma of Jesus, if your life seems dry and unprofitable and unfruitful, then do what Mary did. Get down on your knees before Jesus and start giving Him everything. All of you. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, as Peter puts it. Pour out your life before Him. Become Christ-centered instead of self-centered. And you don't need to quit your job to do this. Do it at your job. Spread the aroma of Christ where you work. You don't need to spend less time with your family to do this. Do it in your home. Spread the the aroma of Christ where you live. Become God-focused instead of self-focused in everything that you're about and in everything that you set your hand to do. Become a 24-7, 365 living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This year you'll need to be a 24-7-366 living sacrifice. That's your reasonable service. 
some at the meal could see the loveliness of Mary's gift, at least at some level. They could smell the the sweet aroma of Christ in Mary's offering. But one certainly could not. Judas saw a squandering of resources. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Yeah, to the poor. He sounded very impressive and noble, but he was just using ethically impressive language to disguise his greed and his thievery. He didn't care about the poor. He was just a thief. As the treasurer, he used to help himself to the money bag. He dipped his hand into it. To Judas, Mary's offering to Jesus stunk to high heaven. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15-7. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, to those who are perishing, we are a fragrance from death to death. To the other, to those who are being saved, we are a fragrance from life to life. To Judas, the aroma of Christ in that house was a fragrance from death to death. He was on the road to hell. And he saw Mary's act of faith as excessive, unnecessary. To the person who doesn't know God, radical devotion to Christ, seems like an impractical and wasteful pursuit. We read in the other accounts of this event that Judas wasn't entirely alone. The other disciples also thought Mary's gift was wasteful. They sympathized with Judas's comment. They probably hedged a little bit more. But they sympathized. Mary is in a class of her own. Her faith soars higher and runs deeper. She's more aware of the glory and worth of Christ than anyone else. She understands His identity and His mission better than the twelve who had been with Him for a few years. (coughs) So, How did Mary arrive at her greater knowledge of Jesus and her deeper faith in Jesus and her stronger devotion to Jesus? It was by being often in the place where we find her now. Where is she in this story? She's at the feet of Jesus, devoting herself to Him and learning from Him. Where is she often? At the feet of Jesus, devoting herself to Him and learning from Him. That's where we find her back in Luke 10, where Jesus eats a meal with Mary and Martha in their own home. The supper at which Martha busied herself with much serving. At the feet of Jesus is where we find Mary also in John 11, when Lazarus is dead, And Jesus finally shows up. 
she goes to meet him and she falls at his feet. So three times we see Mary at Jesus' feet submitting herself to him, learning from him. If you don't know much about spiritual things, if your knowledge is little and your faith is shallow, it's because you have not spent time at Jesus' feet. Do you want to learn? Do you want to grow in your knowledge of God's will and ways? Then sit at the feet of Jesus and worship Him and learn from Him. Devote yourself to Him and let Him instruct you. Now, you might ask, well, how, how do I do that? Jesus is in heaven. It's a, it's a different situation. We can't see Him. And so what's it mean to sit at His feet and learn from Him today? Worship on the Lord's day is where your sitting at the feet of Jesus begins every week. Church either can be an empty religious experience, as we talked about earlier, an exercise in man-made religion, or it can be the time at the beginning of each week when you sit at the feet of Jesus and worship Him with the saints and learn from Him through His Word. And through the singing of the saints. You can also sit at the feet of Jesus in your prayer closet with an open Bible. Scripture is the book that Christ gave us and the book in which you find Him. Do you study the Scriptures? Do you really study them? Do you, do you make time to hear them, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that you may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. That language comes from the Book of Common Prayer. Some people would like to know the Bible, but they won't discipline themselves for the necessary work of learning the Bible. Years ago, a young boy was riding on a train with his spiritual mentor who was a well-known Bible teacher. The teacher was reading his Bible while the boy read the newspaper. The boy finally looked over at his mentor, the teacher, and remarked in a complimentary way, I wish I knew the Bible as you do. And the teacher rep replied kindly, but matter-of-factly, you'll never get to know it by reading the newspaper. And the boy got the message. He put away his newspaper, pulled out his Bible, and began to read it. Now, the point here is not that there's anything wrong with reading the newspaper. The point of the story was that you've got to make reading the Bible a priority. It doesn't just happen passively. And this young boy was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who went on to become a widely known Bible teacher in his own right. Now, not all will become Bible teachers. That's also not the point. But if you are to learn anything about Jesus, the words that God breathed out in the Scriptures are essential. They're living and active 
and sharp. And they're life-giving. They're transforming. And you must study them diligently. In verses 9-11, to Lazarus ends up becoming Jesus' star witness. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, Jesus was there. So this was an open meal at some level. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now verse 11 says that many believed in Jesus on account of Lazarus, because of Lazarus. What did, what did Lazarus do to cause so many people to trust in Christ? Well, the text doesn't say much. The, the text doesn't actually say anything that he did of note. And verse 9 indicates that Lazarus' main, his, his primary act was a passive one. He was raised from the dead by Jesus. Lazarus was no doubt a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But primarily and ultimately, it wasn't about what Lazarus did for Jesus. It was about what Jesus did for Lazarus. And we could extend that both physically and spiritually. He, of course, raised him from the dead physically. But he'd also given Lazarus and his sisters new life. We could say something similar about Mary. Yes, her faith was great. And that's one of the points of this passage. Yes, she anointed Jesus with an extremely expensive oil which tells us that she understood the worth of Christ, which is an important point in this passage. But, but another main point, maybe the main point, is the worth of Christ and the grace of Christ working in His people. Mary didn't give to her Lord nearly as much as He gave her. In six days, He would give everything, even His life. For her, for Lazarus, for the rest of his people. If Jesus has raised you from the dead, if he's called you forth from the grave and given you a new birth, then you, like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, have become a witness to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will be able to see Jesus in you by your love and your service and your devotion and your worship. If you're born of God, then you've been so changed that the only explanation, the only way to account for it is the power of Christ and His Spirit and His cross. Working inside of you. When the wind blows, you can't see it, but you can see its effects. When the Holy Spirit blows in you and causes you to be born again of God, 
People can't see the Spirit in you, but they can see the effects of the Spirit in your life. Born again believers, like Mary, love Jesus and trust Him and learn from Him and submit to Him and devote themselves to Him and find themselves at His feet regularly. They look to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ alone for their salvation. Born-again believers like Mary serve Jesus and His people. They serve Christ and His church without grumbling, without the need for recognition, without comparing themselves to others. And born-again believers like Lazarus, bear witness to Jesus. They urge people to put their faith in Christ, who alone can raise them from the dead and give them everlasting life. Let's pray. Thank You, God, for saving us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank You for sending Him for our salvation. Help us to be the kind of people who produce fruit, whose faith is visible to the world, to those around us. Cause Your Spirit to work in us, to sustain us, to preserve us to the very end, and to transform us to give us growth in grace and in godliness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.